morning, church. Isn't it nice to sing to one another the rule and reign of Christ, to sing all glory be to Christ, to our Lord. It's a good day when we can meet together in the house of the Lord. Please open with me in your Bibles to the book of James. We're going to continue our series in James, uh, looking at chapter 1, verses 5 to 8 today. Um, I'm going to read from verse 1 of chapter 1, so we have a context for our our passage. James chapter 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously with all, uh, to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let's pray. Our Father, we know that we are in need and that there are times where we lack wisdom. We come before you acknowledging our need, saying that we treasure your wisdom, we want your wisdom, and so we come to your word today and ask that you would give us your wisdom, we pray, by your Holy Spirit, amen. In his book, uh, A Grief Observed, C.S. Lewis compiled notes that he journaled after losing his wife, Joy, to cancer. And there was a time where he wrestled with what many people do in their grief, and that's God's apparent silence in his time of need. He writes this, Meanwhile, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. When you are happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing Him, so happy that you are tempted to feel His claims upon you as an interruption, if you remember yourself and turn to Him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to Him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face and the sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. There are no lights in the windows. It might be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? It seemed so once, and that seeming was as strong as this. What can this mean? Why is he so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so very absent a help in time of trouble? And this is C.S. Lewis just being honest about the way that he felt uh, in that time of grief. Last week, we saw in verses 2 to 4 how James begins this letter to a flock that he loves and who are suffering, and he starts the letter with one of the most 
confusing and difficult commands in the New Testament, consider it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. James made a point, and we saw this, that God isn't absent in our trials. He has a purpose in them, that those trials are producing steadfastness in us, leading to maturity in Christ. And that is a reward greater than all the treasure of this world. Now, we need good theology. We need a good theology of suffering if we are to be ready for suffering. But even when your theology is good, it is difficult to cling to the truth when you are the one in the hot seat. Trials test your ability to trust and your faculties of faith. And sometimes the story that you are living, you can't believe it's your own story. Your future takes on dark and, and gloomy shades. And trials bring with them a barrage of fears and confusions and hurt and anxiety. And those things can create a cacophony that lays siege to everything you thought was true about God. And they can drown out sometimes the voice of God. And we are left feeling that God has gone silent when we needed Him the most. And James would have us not trust those feelings, but believe the truth. We are not alone God is present in our trial, and in fact, He is not silent in our trial. Like the psalmist says, He is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in time of trouble. And James has put the plan on the, on the table in verses 2 to 4. When you meet trials, count it joy because you know it leads to steadfastness, and that is a stepping stone to maturity. But James know, knows that you don't get there on your own, that you need help. Maybe in your trial you are struggling to see life God's way, to trust the plan that is on the table. In the, the thick of your struggle, it all just seems like a purposeless mess to you. You need God's wisdom to see things the way He does. Or maybe you've accepted the plan or you, you trust that God is doing something, but in the middle of your trial, it, it still is a mess and you don't know what to do. You don't know which way to go, what path to take, where to turn. You need God's wisdom. James knows that this is true. So at the end of verse 4, he says that the steadfastness would lead to perfection, a lacking in nothing. And then he opens verse 5 with the same idea of lack. He foresees your need in trial if any of you lacks wisdom. James wants us to learn what we need most in order to benefit from our trials even to glorify God in the middle of our trials, is wisdom from God. And so he follows up that, that point that God is not absent from your trials with this point that God is not silent in your trials either. I believe there are two natural divisions to verses 5 to 8, and they'll form the headings that we'll look at today. In verse 5, we're going to look at the call to ask. The call to ask. And in verses 6 to 8, a warning to the asker. A warning to the one asking. So number one, let's look at this call, the call to ask. James addresses the room and his invitation in verse 5 is, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. And really, every single one of us should put up our hands and say, That is me. I need help. I need your wisdom. At times, we lack it. James is a book that is filled with difficult commands, but it is not a book for those who are going to take these commands and, and do them in their own strength. It's not a book for the strong, it's a book for the weak, like the gospel. The gospel is for the weak, it's for the unable, it's for the, the fool, it's for the one who knows that there is 
that God is good when there's nothing good in Him. That God's grace is sufficient for all her needs. And it's for those who own their need and run to their Redeemer. So James's invitation here is, rather than turn your back on God's redemptive purposes and promises, even rather than in the middle of your, your trial, crying out, why me, God, or even just get me out of this, would have you pray for wisdom. Ask for wisdom to meet that trial. And rather than go it in your own strength, put up your hand, admit your lack, and ask for His help. Charles Spurgeon said this once. He said, In seasons of severe trial, Christians have nothing on earth in which to trust, and we are therefore compelled to cast ourselves on our God alone. When our vessel is tilting so far over, it is in danger of capsizing, and no human deliverance can avail. We must simply and entirely trust ourselves to the providence and care of God. Then he says, Happy storm that wrecks us on such a rock as this. A blessed hurricane that drives us, drives the soul to God and God alone. Trials are an opportunity. They teach us dependence upon Him. So as we consider this call, I want to ask two questions. And the first is this, what is wisdom? What is the wisdom that James is talking about here? It was important for him. We, we spoke in the first week about how there's different voices you can pick up in the, the letter to James. And sometimes he is proverbial in voice. He, he gives these proverbs. He moves from one topic to the next quite quickly. And he, he has at his heart the central idea, the, the maturity of the church. James has been called the Proverbs of the New Testament, and in these few verses we see how the heart of Solomon has impacted on James. His call here is the grand cry of the first few chapters of the book of Proverbs. The importance of wisdom is something to seek after and pursue. Proverbs 3, 13 to 14, blessed is the one who finds wisdom. And the one who gets understanding, for the gain from her is better than gain from silver, and her profit better than gold. We know there was an important day in Solomon's life, a day that shaped the rest of his life. He was a newly crowned king, and God came to him with an offer. Ask of me anything, and I will give it. And did Solomon ask for fame, or for glory, for wealth or for victory over his enemies. No, he, he asked for wisdom to lead, and it says that it was pleasing to God what he asked. In his request, he spoke of his father David's faithfulness and righteousness and devotion to the Lord, and Solomon is asking for the same, that he might lead the people of Israel well as they follow their God. Solomon was saying, more than I need any earthly treasures, I need you, I need your mind and your heart. See, wisdom is not to be confused with mere knowledge. It's far more than that. In his commentary, Kent Hughes writes, Wisdom is far more than the accumulation of information and intellectual perception. The fact is, man through his vast accumulation of knowledge has learned to travel faster than sound, but displays his need of wisdom by going faster and faster in the wrong direction. Man has amassed a huge store of information about the world, but shows his abysmal lack of wisdom by failing to live any better in the world. Wisdom is not about what you know, but who you know. It is relational in its makeup. Proverbs 2 verse 6 says, For the Lord gives wisdom. From His mouth 
come knowledge and understanding. So wisdom is the overflow of a right relationship with God. And we see in the arena of trials how this is beautifully illustrated in the life of Job, isn't it? Job was tested by the most severe of trials. He experiences what C.S. Lewis experienced, the apparent silence of God when he brings his complaint. He endures poor counseling from his peers, all the while questioning and bringing that complaint to the Lord. And then he asks a question in chapter 28 of Job, verse 12, where shall wisdom be found? He discusses where it isn't. He says, man doesn't know its worth. It's not hidden on the earth. You can't, it can't be bought with silver or gold or precious rubies. And he says in verses 23 and 24, God understands the way to it and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. Wisdom is being able to see things from God's perspective, including your own circumstances. So finally, Job says in verse 28, Behold, the fear of the Lord that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. And, and so we see this theme throughout Scripture, throughout the Old Testament. What is wisdom? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In the middle of trials, the fear of the Lord is how wisdom begins. It begins with this humility that says, I may not like this. I don't know why I'm going through this. So I don't like what I'm going through, but your wisdom and your understanding are beyond all comparison. And I know this, that you are good in all that you do. And I cannot walk this path alone, so I'm coming to you. J.I. Packer in his book, The Way of Wisdom, says this, not till we have become humble and teachable, standing in awe of God's holiness and sovereignty, acknowledging our littleness, distrusting our own thoughts, and willing to have our minds turned upside down, can divine wisdom become ours. So James says there is wisdom available for you in your trial, enough to enable you to glorify God in the midst of it, and it flows from right relationship with Him, from the fear of the Lord, from trusting Him in your trial, desiring to be close to Him in it. And that's why James will lift up or appeal to us to lift up our eyes from our circumstances, lift them up for a minute and behold the God of wisdom. If, if we're going to come and ask, we need to know the glorious truth about the one from whom we are asking. We need to know about His character. So the second question has, who is it that gives this wisdom? Verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Isn't that a, a bold, bold promise to make? Maybe too bold, but James can make it because he knows the character of God. We know how the book of Proverbs has impacted on the heart of James, but we see here as well how the words of Jesus himself have impacted on his heart. In Matthew 7, 7, Jesus says to us, ask and it will be given to you. In the context, he's making for his disciples a point about the character, the heart of God as a perfect father. So he goes on to say in chapter 7, verse 11, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Jesus and James want us to live within the framework of a certain knowledge about who God is, what God is like. He is the God 
who gives. In fact, a, a more literal reading of this verse would be that. Let him, who ask, let, let him ask God, the giving one. The giving, he is the giving one. He is not like us. We are moved at times to bouts of generosity when we feel like it, but he is always disposed towards his children graciously and generously. He doesn't say to you and I, ask tomorrow when I'm in a better mood. When you're in your trial, it can be tempting to think of God this way, that maybe he is distant or even annoyed. Or to question, is he really as approachable as the Bible says? I know this is true of me. Many Christians worry, is he maybe angry? Is he maybe wrathful towards me? Waiting for the boot to drop. But Romans 8.32 says, he who did not spare his own son, this is what he's already done, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? James says he gives generously, generously. And I, I hope you'll bear with me for a minute. The word is so rich. I just want to highlight something about it. The, the word in its adverb form here is only used, it's only used here in the New Testament in adverb form, but it's in its adjective form. It's used by Jesus actually in Matthew 6.22 when he's talking about the eye. When he says, talking about a healthy eye or a sound eye, this word for generous, the same word. Jesus says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. Literally, the word means single, having a single eye. In other words, not plagued by double vision or anything that might diminish the clarity of, of sight. And that coincides well with the way this word is used in its noun form in the Bible. The same word for generosity is used for single-mindedness word is used in reference to our devotion to the Lord in 2 Corinthians 11, and or a slave's loyalty to his master in Ephesians 6 verse 5. So somehow this word generosity also means single-mindedness or, or single. It is used of the ministry of generosity in the church as well in the books of Romans and 2 Corinthians. But when we come to this word, we ask the question, how did this word that means single-minded or, or, or singularity of focus come to mean generosity as well and be used in that way? I believe it's saying something, James is saying something about the character of God. And it's important because he's going to go on to speak about how we sometimes, the asker sometimes is double-minded saying the opposite is true of God. He is not. He is single in focus. He is committed to our good. What he gives is always good for his children. He's committed to that. Alec Matia says in his commentary, this is how the giving God gives, with a selfless, total concern for us and with an exclusive preoccupation as if he had nothing else to do but to give and give again. He gives to all without reproach. The promise is for all of his children, not just for the smart, not just for the, the great theological minds of the church. The promise is to the simple. The promise is to the struggler. The promise is to the weak. My wisdom is available for you. Without reproach. Another version says to all without finding fault. It is possible to give a gift like that, isn't it? With reproach. Yes, I'll, I'll give you some more money, but what happened to the money I gave you last month? 
He doesn't count the times that you come and ask and hold it over your head. He doesn't throw your failures in your face. He doesn't roll his eyes because you come hat in hand again. He doesn't scold you for not already having all the wisdom that you need. And he doesn't play favorites with his children. He loves like a perfect father only can love. His words are simple. Do you need? Then come to me. Do you need? Then come. The 19th century commentator Charles Bridges says he loves to be consulted. Therefore, take all thy difficulties to be resolved by him. He loves to be consulted. He takes pleasure in our coming sincerely to commune with him. He loves it when we own our need, acknowledge it, and run to him to have that need met because he is the desire of our hearts. Are there times where you are kept from praying, where you don't bring your need to him, where you don't come to him, where you're kept from seeking his help and his wisdom because you are keenly aware, perhaps, of the sinfulness of your heart. Maybe you are reluctant to come before him because you're worried you're going to be a nuisance to him, worried that he won't be disposed to help you. Put that from your mind if you are a child of God. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for those who have received, Paul speaks of the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. My church, the invitation is great. And he gives us faith for this purpose, the purpose of his own glory and his pleasure in our coming humbly and boldly to him. Is, the, is this the Father that you know? The Father who invites you with open arms to ask for wisdom in your trial. So that's number one, the call to ask. Let's look, number two, at a warning. A warning for the asker. Let me read verses six to eight again. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of, of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And so after this promise that soars in Scripture among the promises from God, James provides quite a sober warning. And there is a way to approach the Lord that is not honoring to Him, that does not glorify the God of grace and generosity. That's to approach Him with a divided heart. I want to proceed here with caution because this passage can be misunderstood. Maybe it's been a source of turmoil in your heart before. We need to be careful when we, to understand what James means when he talks about doubt because the truth is we all doubt, don't we? Even in my best prayers, sometimes they're tainted by doubt. A little niggling worry in the back of my heart. Will this really be heard? Does God refuse to hear? Because in your prayer you struggle with doubt. The moment that there is doubt tainting your prayer, does he turn his back? I don't believe that's what James is saying. James is not primarily speaking of the struggle we sometimes have with intellectual or theological doubts. And I believe there are some clues in this passage Two words that James employs when he describes the doubt. He speaks of this one who doubts. And the basic meaning of the word doubt is quite broad. It's pretty general. It can mean to differentiate or to distinguish. 
It's used at times for making judgments in, in the New Testament. James uses this very word in chapter 2, verse 4, when he's speaking in the context of the sin of partiality. He says, a rich person and a, a poor person come into the church and you distinguish. You make a judgment. It's the same word. It, it, there's this idea of being torn between two choices at the heart of this word. And so I believe James is probably thinking here of a strong kind of doubting, a serious division within the person that leads to wavering and inconsistency of heart and attitude towards God. The same word is used uh, by Paul in Romans chapter 4, speaking of Abraham's faith. In 4 verse 20, he says, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith, faith as he gave glory to God. Now, Paul knows as well as we do that Abraham had his doubts at time. At one point, he welcomed the promise of God with laughter. Paul's point is that not that Abraham never entertained any doubts. He's saying rather over the long haul, over the long haul, he displayed consistency in his faith. He built his life on the promises of God, and he pursued in the midst of that obedience and trust. James isn't saying that if, if we have some doubt in our prayers, that God won't listen to those prayers. He'd never hear any of us. But he is saying, the one who asks, there ought to be a spiritual integrity to that person that comes with a real devotion to God. This interpretation, I believe, is supported by another clue in verse 8, another description of this doubter. He says he is a, a double-minded man. The word literally is double-souled, double-souled. It's the first time we see it in all of Greek literature. It's probably a word that James has coined himself. I don't believe to introduce anything new to Scripture, but to summarize a biblical idea. So on the one hand, the psalmist says, Psalm 119 verse 2, Blessed are those who keep His testimonies, who seek Him with their whole heart. And then conversely, we see in the Old Testament, Israel condemned for idolatry, for having a divided heart. Hosea 10 verse 2, their heart is false, now they must bear their guilt. Deuteronomy 6 verse 5, that great command reiterated by our Lord, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And Jesus comes and he warns us about the dangers of trying to serve two masters, of having a divided heart. You will end up hating one and being devoted to the other. It cannot be sustained in the world. J James, I believe, is talking to this kind of person. He speaks again in chapter 4, verse 4, another warning. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. In the book Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan has a name for the kind of person, I believe, that James is describing. Mr. Face Both Ways. He glances at God, but his eyes on the world. His heart is in the world, longing for the world. He has one foot in the church and one foot in the world, eager for some of the benefits that he believes Christianity has to offer when it suits him. But he does not build his life on the fear of the Lord. And when you approach God in this way, James says there are two serious results, two serious consequences. Firstly, your prayer life is affected. In verse 7, that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. 
That is a serious warning. It isn't Christ's kingdom. It isn't Christ's righteousness that directs your heart to Him. You can't make up your mind one day to the next. Is it God's word that I follow or is it the world's wisdom that I follow? James is saying you can't live with your heart in the world and then come to God and expect there to be the wisdom of God for you in your trial. He says in verse 8, another consequence, this person is unstable in all his ways. It's the opposite of the steadfastness that he was speaking of in verses 3 to 4. Douglas Moo summarizes this in his commentary. He says, it is what we might call a spiritual schizophrenia that James criticizes in these verses explicitly and implicitly throughout his letter. A basic division in the soul that leads to thinking, speaking, and acting that contradicts one's claim to belong to God. He's got a very descriptive illustration of this person, doesn't he? In verse 6, the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind everywhere the wind goes. I don't do well in boats. I don't even do well in the back seat of a car. I suffer from motion sickness. I can get sick watching people on a roller coaster. In those situations, and when I'm sitting in the back seat of a car, I try to focus my vision, try to concentrate on not feeling sick. But it's not my eyes that are the problem, it's my stomach. My stomach goes everywhere the motion goes. James says, like a wave driven every which way by the wind, so this person lacks the loyalty of faith. They're driven by every wind of desire, every wind of temptation, every wind of emotion, every wind of envy and worldly wisdom. Maybe here today, if you are honest with yourself, this is a good description of where you are at. Sometimes you come to God for wisdom, but the wisdom you want is not the wisdom that would help you to glorify Him, honor Him, seek first His kingdom, help you bear His name in submission and sacrifice. The wisdom you come to Him for is wisdom that you can use to build your own kingdom to your own glory that things would work out in the way you want them to in your timing. Paul Tripp in a sermon on this says, God has no commitment to giving you wisdom so your self-focused purposes will work. God's wisdom is kingdom wisdom and it's for those who are loyal to the work of his kingdom. Wisdom, and I, I love this, true wisdom runs on the rails of submission and obedience. Maybe this is you today. Maybe you are, Mr. Face Both Ways. You're here in church, but you have one eye on the world. Your heart is out there. James is calling you to repent, to come to God, not for the benefits that you think God can provide, but as Piper puts it, come to God to get God, to gain what this world cannot offer. Maybe today your heart does belong to Him. Like mine, your heart is prone to doubting. You're prone to doubting. Now we praise a gracious Father that doesn't turn away from us because we struggle, but we do not do what the world does. The world prizes doubt and skepticism. It refuses to take God at His word. It revels in human wisdom and glorifies that wisdom over the wisdom of God. The world judges the word of God by their own wisdom. And we don't prize our doubts. We acknowledge them, we are real about them, and we follow the psalmist in taking them to God, admitting them to Him, leaving them with Him, and seeking from Him truth. 
and choosing to trust and obey. We love our Christ who was tender with doubters, patient with John the Baptist when even John the Baptist was questioning if Jesus really was the Messiah. Patient with Thomas who said, unless I feel and see those scars, I will not believe. Showing mercy to a desperate father who came and said, please, if there is anything that you can do, help me. But we come to him and we say, I believe, help my unbelief. Christian, there is a stability of life and of purpose and there is a blessing of a sweet prayer life that we might even miss out on if we can't learn to bring our doubts to him. Bring the lies that we tell ourselves to be, to be crucified by Christ, to put to death in his arms and being willing to leave trusting in his truth, the word of his promise. Maybe like me, I know that in all of us, there is a struggle for loyalty. You love him and you want to love him with an undivided heart, but your heart sometimes isn't. You feel the tug of war with the world for the affections of your heart. You want to be loyal, but sometimes you aren't. You want to prioritize his kingdom first, but sometimes you prioritize your own. Well, we come together today and we praise our God for a savior who was undivided in his heart when he went to the cross for us. He lived in his life perfect wisdom. He lived his life, Jesus did, on the rails of submission and obedience to the Father's will. He was stable in all his ways, intent on the purposes and the promises of God. Jesus was not Mr. Face both ways. He set his eyes like flint for Jerusalem, straight for the task given him. And through his death and resurrection, he purchased for you and I freedom and redemption. When he died, the temple curtain was torn in two. And so the, the invitation exists to come. Come to a father whose love outshines the world. Jesus Christ, he is the word of God. He is trustworthy and true and righteous today. And he is drawing our hearts ever nearer to him. So let us pray together. Let us come to him in prayer. Our Lord, you are, you are trustworthy. And Father, I know in a room this size, I will not assume that there are no people here who are living like this, Mr. Face both ways. There may be people in this room, God, whose, whose hearts are not really here, whose glances towards the world. They want to live in the world, embracing the wisdom of the world. Father, I pray that you would break their hearts today. I pray, Lord, that they would see Christ and value your wisdom and desire, desire to live in the fear of the Lord. God, for those, I pray that there would be salvation today. We know that you can do it, that you can open the eyes of our heart. Only you can do it, and I pray that you would do it. Lord, we all struggle with doubts. Despite how good you have been to us, still when we come before you, in the back of our minds, there are doubts. Will you receive us today? Will you love us today? Even are you good today? Lord, I pray that you would help us to put those doubts to death. Help us to trust you. Our Lord, we pray for a bold faith in our church. Lord, we ask that you would do that work in us. 
Make our, our prayer lives sweet. Let them grow in their effectiveness as we pursue your kingdom and righteousness. Sanctify us, we pray, Jesus. We ask in your holy name. Amen. Amen. We, we come now to important um, time in our worship. We're going to partake of communion together. If you don't have um, the elements, please put up your hand. Um, in fact, I don't have with me at the front, so Daniel, could you also bring, uh, don't throw it at me, Adrian. <laughs> could you bring me some as well? This is a precious gift to the church.